He created the earth in seven days. No, make that six. He took a day off. Scholars valued his wisdom at age 12. His legend precedes him the way lightning precedes thunder. He has more followers than Twitter has accounts. He likes to take long walks on water. He is the most fascinating guy on the planet. All right, so here we go. We're launching the most fascinating guy on the planet. And, uh, you know, for those of you worldly people who watch television, you're probably aware it's a knockoff of a beer commercial slogan, right? You've seen the guy, he's got that well-groomed beard, and he's so fascinating, and he's, you know, he swims with sharks, and he, he uh, you know, chases alligators, and, and he's always sitting around regaling people with his amazing tales and everything. He's, uh, he does this amazing stuff. Man of intrigue. Here's, here's the voiceover from actual commercials. If he were to mail a letter without postage, it would still get there. You know, if it's raining, it's because he's thinking about something sad. His blood smells like cologne. He is the most interesting man in the world. It's amazing. You know, and we're drawn to fascinating people. We're drawn to people who have a sense of intrigue and who are bigger than life. When Google has a question, they ask him. You know, <laughs> he can set an ant on fire with a magnifying glass at night. You know? <laughs> When he does push-ups, he doesn't push himself up. He pushes the world down. You know, this is an amazing thing. We got to thinking about this. It didn't take us long to look at that and say, this is too good. This, is, this guy has got nothing on Jesus. That guy in the commercials has nothing on. Who is the most fascinating guy to ever, and for copyright reasons, to ever walk the planet? It's absolutely Jesus, man. Am I right or am I right? I mean, that guy in the commercial is a boring dork compared to the Jesus that we're going to talk about. You know, we don't always plan sermon series that have to do with beer commercials. But when we do, you can be pretty sure they're about Jesus. All right? Okay. Uh, can you see Jesus gathered around and his disciples kind of leaning in? And he's sipping a glass of wine. He's like, I don't always drink wine. But when I do, it used to be water. <laughs> I mean, like I said, he is the most fascinating guy on the planet. So say... Um, what we want to do is for everyone to just say, can we all just kind of step back and wake up to Jesus? Can we look at him with fresh eyes as if you've never seen him before? Wipe the slate clean because we all got him in a little box. We all got him figured out. We got him kind of locked up. Will you let him surprise you? Because if you see Jesus for who he truly is, he'll shock you, he'll grip you, he'll change you. Not just once a long time ago, he'll change you today if you follow and work. But only if you see the real Jesus. Walt Disney's daughter wrote a biography of her dad and says that when she was little, how she didn't have any idea who her dad was or what he did for a living. She's like six years old at kindergarten or something at school, and her friends are like, hey, you know Mickey Mouse and the Magic Kingdom and all that? And she's like, yeah. They're like, that's your dad. She's like, no. You know, she goes home, and she says to her dad, dad, how come you never told me? You're Walt Disney, you know. And I feel like that's what needs to happen for me and probably for you every once in a while with Jesus. Be able to see him again and go, oh my goodness, you're amazing. I had forgotten or I never knew. And, and to, to just see him again.
or maybe for the first time. I don't know where you are with Jesus. We're all someplace with him. We all think something about him. We all feel something toward him. Maybe you're a stranger to Jesus, in which case this is a great time for you to be at Mountain Welcome. Glad you're here because you're going to get a chance to see him and know him. Maybe, maybe you're mad at Jesus because something that happened. Maybe, maybe you see Jesus primarily as like an old-timey figure, you know, someone who wears Birkenstocks and a hemp robe and, you know, needs to comb his hair and just not that relevant. You don't think about him very often because he doesn't seem like he connects to your daily life. Maybe you're someone who's a Christian, but you actually have some deep doubts. Maybe, maybe you've been a believer, but your faith is just kind of stagnant. You don't find yourself really drawn to Jesus, like excited to talk to him or be around him. You're going through motions. Maybe you think religion's kind of messed up, and since Jesus is sort of associated with that, you, you, know, you, don't, you kind of have him at arm's length too. Maybe you're a committed Christian. I don't care who we are. Can we get fresh eyes? Will you allow your assumptions to be challenged with, if there was truth that needed to challenge your assumption, are you brave enough to let that happen? Or do you want to keep Jesus, the whatever version you have of him, in a nice little box so you can kind of go on with your fantasy world? That's what Jesus is asking us. So, the Bible says that if Jesus is lifted up, the real Jesus, he will draw people to himself. And I pray that that will happen in my life through this series, through in your life. Like you'll be drawn to him. Like you'll want to put some of his teaching into practice. Like you'll have a real relationship of sorts. It won't look like someone else's, but that you will move and do whatever you need to do to rearrange your life to put Jesus closer into the center of who you are. And what we want to do today is begin by trying to take in the immense scope and the enormity of his impact and his influence. Just that in tremendous imprint of this one man, Jesus, that he continues to have on the world. There's a great book, and a lot of us in our small groups right now are using the book by John Ortberg called Who Is This Man? Tremendous book. We're going to lean very heavily on parts of that book for this message today. It's so good. I encourage you to get it. Get into a group if you want to study along with what we're doing because it helps us get at this question. Seven billion people on the planet. And for the last 2,000 years... Billions more have come and gone, but towering over them all is this one lone figure. It's incredible. I, I love Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan. He says these words, listen, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in history for over 20 centuries. If it were possible, with some sort of super magnet, to pull up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing the least little trace of his name and influence, what would be left? It's a fascinating question. What would the world be like if Jesus had never come? It's hard for us to even picture it because his imprint is so everywhere that we don't even realize it, you know? It's hard to imagine. The capital of my home state, Minnesota, is St. Paul. Why is there a St. Paul? Because there was a man named Paul whose life was radically changed by Jesus. That's why. Where my sister lives in California, there's a Sacramento. Why is there a Sacramento? Because of the sacrament of Jesus Christ. Why, why is there a San Jose? Well, because there happened to be a man named Joseph, Jose Joseph, who was connected to Jesus. Santa Barbara, because of a woman who loved Jesus named Barbara. San Francisco, Santa Ana, San Antonio, 
Santa Cruz, Santa Clara, Santa Maria, Santa Claus. No, I made that up. You get the idea. All these people are people whose lives were changed by Jesus. And we don't even think about it. The cities bear his name and the world is impacted by it. Why is there a new haven, Connecticut? Because people said, we need a new community where there's a haven around the, the, the vision of God. It's from Jesus. How about Philadelphia? It's a word taken from Jesus. City of brotherly love, he said. How about Providence, Rhode Island? It's a Jesus idea about the providence of God. Why is there a New Jersey? I don't know either. From St. Petersburg, Russia, to Sao Paulo, Brazil, to Christchurch, New Zealand, to Christmas Island in the South Pacific, to St. Louis in Missouri, to San Fernando in the Philippines, to the country of El Salvador, they're named for people whose lives were changed by Jesus, and he's ingrained into the world as we know it today. I don't always look at a map, but when I do, I usually see my name on it somewhere. He's the most fascinating guy in the world. The cross is the most common and widely recognized symbol in the history of the world. It's, it, it adorns art and necklaces, and, 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 and the practice of burying people in graveyards is a Christian idea. It came from Jesus' followers. The word cemetery comes from the Greek word that means sleeping place, because Christians changed the concept of death. It said it's not a, cemeteries aren't creepy places, they're sleepy places. People are, are going to rise again because of the resurrection of Jesus. That's where it comes from. No, when you miss a putt, nobody has ever said, oh, Mahatma Gandhi. He's the mo Jesus is the most fascinating guy to ever walk the planet. Let's be crystal clear about something. If you were putting money down on who would have a lasting impact and change the world and have a legacy that would outlive himself, you, 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 it would not be Jesus. He, in, his, in the yearbook of his high school class, it does not say most likely to succeed by Jesus' name. He's the last person you'd bet on. He was not a political figure. He didn't have any connections. Herod didn't like him. Sanhedrin Rome, they didn't have, he didn't have army, no weapons, no campaign, no campaign manager, no Twitter account, no Facebook feed to send little messages to the people. He didn't have an army. He didn't have weapons. He didn't have a big donations. He didn't have a cabinet. He didn't have a secretary of state. Never wrote a book. Never wrote a blog. He didn't travel that widely. His followers were most, mostly uneducated and ridiculously ill-equipped, unimportant, uninfluential people. I love what Ortberg says. He says, for every other person who's ever lived, their influence begins to diminish the day they die. But not with Jesus. In fact, his impact, 100 years after he lived, died, and rose again, was greater than it was when he was on the planet. In fact, 500 years later, it was greater still. And 1,000 years later, it was literally shaping all of Western civilization. And 2017 years later, the name and fame of this man, he's got more followers in more places than ever. His name is spreading and growing, and his influence is increasing every single day and every single moment, including this one. Somehow, the brief life of this little carpenter from a backwater town in Galilee has become the dividing line of all of history on this planet. He is the most fascinating guy on the planet. I don't often visit the earth in person, but when I do, I really shake things up. He's fascinating. Maybe you just say, well, you know, it's just dumb luck. You know, he came at the right time. The Roman Empire was fragile or, you know, he had a good mom and he knew how to tell creative stories and, uh, you know, sort of a Jesus gump sort of lucky thing. Really? Well, that would take a lot of faith to believe that. Try to imagine the world without Jesus and his influence. We can't do it, but let's try. 
first of all realized that it would mean there would be no church, the movement that he spawned, that has changed society and the world in so many ways we can't even imagine a world without it. I'm not just talking about the big cathedrals, no Notre Dame, no St. Paul's, no, no Mountain Christian or church in China, but we're talking also no Peter, no Paul, no Timothy, no Augustine, no Aquinas, no Billy Graham, no Mother Teresa, no St. Francis, no John Milton, no Joan of Arc, no John Wesley, no John Calvin, no John Bunyan, no John the Baptist. Did you know that the very idea of church was a radical and new idea that came from Jesus? Because you see, in the ancient world, there were nations, there were families, there were tribes and ethnicities, and you hung together in those clusters. But Jesus came along, and he came up with something completely different the world had never seen. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a new group of called out ones. It's what the word church means. Ecclesia means the ones who are called out from among the ethnicities and the tribes. He says, I'm going to call out a special new kind of community that the world has never seen. Paul described it this way in Colossians 3. In this new life with Jesus now at the center, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters. And he's alive and living in this new community, in each one of us. And if that's true, then we're going to start looking like him, which means we're going to show the world something else that they've never seen. And that is people who are tenderhearted and full of mercy. They're kind, they're humble, they're gentle, and they're patient. It's a different kind of new community. The world had never seen anything like it. And I know a lot of people are down on the church today. Ah, they're a bunch of hypocrites, they're a bunch of bigots, they're mean-hearted, they're, you know, and all that stuff. And sometimes we, we are. We just don't live up to who we are. But it's not who we are at our best, and it's not what Jesus did when he formed a special community that crossed all the lines and ethnicities and tribes of called-out people so that we could be a place where people from every nationality, every gender, every age, every tribe, every language, every ethnicity, no matter how wealthy or poor, ugly or cute, educated or uneducated, Everyone could be included and loved and welcomed and changed from the inside out by this one man. And then together we can be a blessing to the world. As a matter of historical fact, there had never been a community like this before. This group of people who saw themselves as an extension of Jesus. In fact, were called the body of Christ on the planet. And it all began with a poverty-stricken carpenter. Fascinating. Think of how Jesus changed history. Think of history for a minute. All of time and all the days of our lives are reckoned according to the life and death of this one man. Every time you get out your cell phone and look at the time, you don't realize it, but you, you have checked out something based on the arrival of Jesus. Did you know that? Did, do you know why New Year's Day falls when it does? Well, because of Jesus. Back in Israel, back in the day, they would start counting on the day a baby was born. And then on the eighth day, they would bring him into the temple, and if it was a boy, they'd have him circumcised, and then they'd name the baby. And that happened to Jesus. And eventually it came to say, well, they came to say, well, let's say he was born on December 25, 6, 7, 8, 9, 30, 31. Eighth day, they brought him to the temple, and that marks the day that the name of Jesus came into the world. And that's why it's considered New Year's Day, because Jesus brings new hope and new life and new starts. And it's more than just a calendar. Jesus changed 
the whole idea of history and how we think about history. Because before the time of Jesus, you see, the whole world thought of history as a sort of hapless, random cycle of endless events that had no order. It was just sort of the whimsical, cosmic will of the gods in the sky. But when Jesus came, it changed all of that. History had a beginning, and he was there. And then he visited the planet, he's coming again. And everything's moving toward a destination. It's a story, and you're part of the story. It's not hapless, it's not hopeless, it's hopeful and it's driving towards something. It's an idea that didn't exist before the time of Jesus. Luke tells us when Jesus was born. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, it reads this way. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Well, when was that? Well, this took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. It's kind of an awkward, odd way to tell us about the event. Why didn't they just tell us the date? Well, because in those days, they dated everything off of the life of the Caesar. Hey, when was that? Oh, it was the third year of that particular Caesar. That's how they dated things, according to the reign of the emperor. Up until about the 6th century, when a Christian living in Rome proposed a new system for keeping track of time and reckoning history. His name was Dionysius Exiguus. It's an impressive sounding name. Here he is. Until you realize that his name, Dionysus Exiguus, means it's Latin for little Dennis. More impressive in Latin. Not to be confused with his cousin, Dionysus Delinquitus, which is Dennis the Menace. Anyway, back to little Dennis. So little Dennis said that the calendar should no longer be based on the founding of Rome and its emperors, but rather on the central event that divides history into two, the coming of Jesus. And everybody agreed, and that's the calendar we still use today. Not as a more convenient way to reckon time, but because it was a statement to say Jesus is at the center of all time. And when you order your life and your days, he should be at the center of your life too. That's what it's about. He doesn't go by a calendar. Calendars go by him. I mean, he is the most fascinating guy in the world. And here's the hilarious part. No emperor in those days had really ever heard of him or cared about him because he just had this little random group of disciples who kept saying Jesus was king of kings and lord of lords, but they didn't have to pay any attention because there was just a handful of oddballs, laughable. I mean, which empire would you predict would last longer? The Roman Empire with all of its massive might and money and power spread over all the known world? Or this little impoverished rabbi and his band of unschooled ruffians and, and fishermen? Who would you pick? You wouldn't pick the rabbi guy. Never. Except that, my friends, here we are 2,000 years later. Here we are. And we're still giving names to our kids like Peter and Paul and Mary and Martha and James and John and Andrew. And names like Nero and Caesar we give to our dogs. <laughs> or maybe a pizza shop. He is the most fascinating guy on the planet. Think about, think about Nero for a minute. Massive ruler, emperor, Caesar. He, he killed Christians by the thousands. He called himself Lord. You shall call me Lord, Caesar. You shall bow down to worship me. That's what he was all about. But, oh, but did I mention also he died? When did he die, you ask? Well, he died in the year of our Lord, 68 A.D. The word Lord means ruler. Hmm? How about Napoleon? 
Picture of Napoleon here. I know when I say Napoleon, a lot of you think of this guy. No, not Napoleon Dynamite. I'm talking about the other Napoleon who went marching all over Europe and was trying to conquer the whole world, exerting his dominance, and he was a great guy, but he died. When? Oh, in the year of our Lord, 1821. Joseph Stalin, dictator of the Communist Soviet Union, avowed atheist, promoted the elimination of Christianity. Oh, he died. When? In the year of our Lord, 1821. And every great underlord and leader has died in the year of our true Lord sometime. And every regime and nation that has risen has fallen. And every leader and person who's ever lived has died. And now they're buried beneath a tombstone that has two dates on it. And those dates take their reckoning from the life of this one great man, Jesus Christ, who, by the way, doesn't have a tombstone of his own. I don't always die, but when I do, I rise again. (laughs) Think about how Jesus has completely renovated our concept of compassion, what it is and who receives it. See, because in the world Jesus came into, Greece and Rome dominated things, and there, people you admired were the rich and the strong and the famous. You paid attention to the noble, the beautiful people, the people who could make big donations for public works or statues or parks and then put their name on a plaque and attach it to them. But the weak, the vulnerable, the small, the forgotten, the children, the widows, the orphans, the blind, the lame, the broken, they were all pushed to the side as a scourge on society. And if that was you, it happened to you, so much the worse for you. It was just a sort of fate of the gods too bad for you. In the first century, a Roman philosopher by the name of Seneca, who was a classic Stoic philosopher, epitomized this view when he said, we drown our children at birth when they're weak and abnormal. Now, he wasn't trying to be mean. He was just saying that's the wisest, smartest thing they could think to do. It's what they did. It was a very you know, Stoic culture. They didn't care much for women in those days either. So for every million little girls that were born, about 500,000 of them were drowned. Archaeologists have found piles of baby bones in the sewer drains. This is the world into which Jesus came. And then he would say one day, as people were shooing children away so he could talk, he said, no, wait, you let the little children come to me. He said the kingdom of God was closer to a child than it was to some of the big shots. And we needed to become like a child, which is why the followers of that man, Jesus, began to understand the ministry of compassion in a different way, and they began to take in abandoned children. They thought this is what Jesus would have us do. And they took in unwanted children who were thrown out like banana peels in the ditch. They would grab those kids, the deformed ones, the the hurting ones, and they'd bring them in and they'd take care of them because the church, they understood, was an extension of the body of Christ and was a rescue operation, and they knew that people mattered to God. And it was a new idea. It was called compassion. That he introduced. He doesn't just show compassion. He invented it. Widows in the ancient world were not highly thought of. They were considered a nuisance. They were actually fined. It was like considered bad form to outlive your husband. Sort of a drag on the economy, you know. So you got to pull your weight somehow. And then the followers of Jesus remembered Jesus saying in his dying breath as he hanged on the cross, John, take care of my mother. Make her your mother. And the church, in the earliest days, from the first pages of the early church, they knew to care for the widows, and it extended to the poor and the blind and the homeless. 
Rodney Stark is a historical sociologist who, who says that one reason the church exploded in the early centuries especially was because of the major epidemics that came along. And they wiped out like a third of the population. And the way the church responded in the middle of that with compassion it was something the world had never seen. And people were drawn out of that tragedy to Jesus. Think of the panic that would ensue when a third of your city is dead. You're literally carting relatives out into the street, hauling them off and dumping them in mass graves. People are running for cover. And this strange little community of Jesus' followers went against the grain. They weren't, they weren't going to stay detached. They got into the mess and they took people into their homes that they didn't even know at great risk to their own lives. They were empowered by this man, Jesus, who touched lepers even though it was against the law, who loved the blind, the lame, the deaf. And so they took care of sick people at risk of their own health. This happened. This happened. You know what? It still happens, and it needs to keep happening. They were so moved by their experience with Jesus, not because it was a religion or a philosophy or something, but they had met a man who was so different, they knew it was the truth, and it radically altered their lives, and compassion was birthed in the world. You know where the first hospitals came from? Christians. A man named Benedict said, we ought to be the ones leading the way on caring for those who need help. And so all of the early monasteries and the big churches all had hospitals attached to them. It was compassion for the weak and the marginalized as Jesus taught, even to people who can't give you anything in return, he said. And now it has worked our way, this compassion idea, so much into the fiber of what we consider good that we think it's normal, but it came from Jesus. At the Geneva Convention, they started an organization to help alleviate human suffering, and they chose as a symbol a cross. They said, let's make it red. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called the Red Cross. How about the Salvation Army? That name should ring a bell. It's a ministry of compassion, okay? Started by a Jesus follower named William Booth. How about World Vision? It's done so much around the world for compassion. How about Compassion International? Mountain here, we support hundreds of kids. We sponsor them through Compassion International. Christ-based ministry. How about YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association? All of these organizations, they were springing from Jesus' compassion. You can go to a hospital like the one my sister works in called St. Jude. You go to St. Joe's. You go to Good Samaritan. Whether you know it or not, these things are here today because of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that no one else would have ever thought to do something kind or that no hospitals ever would have been invented. I'm not saying that, but I am saying this. You go to every corner of this earth and you look at, you look at that orphanage. You look at that hospice. You look at that hospital, and I'll tell you this, 90% of them are here because of the love of Jesus Christ and his followers. It's just the truth. Imagine, imagine how the Jesus movement has changed so radically education and how we think of it today. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, they loved it. The Jews quoted it all the time. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus quoted it as well, except he sometimes Changed it a little bit. Luke chapter 10 shows us here. He starts the same way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Then he added, and with all your mind. And it's why Jesus' followers have come to believe that we've got to love God with our mind too, which is why they were the pioneers of the early schools and universities in this country and all over the world. Because they wanted to love God with their mind. That's the reason why Christians took to copying. And so, so many of the world's literature that we have, even pagan works, are preserved by Christians who sat painstakingly and made hand copies, and we still have them today, because Christians believed you worshipped God with your mind. 
They began to build these schools. Maybe you've heard of a little one. They said a bunch of Christians got together to start one. They call it Oxford. Maybe you've heard of it. And they called it a university because they believed the whole universe was God's. And all truth was God's truth. And he's supremely rational. And it's why, it's why the scientific revolution began to kick off at places like Cambridge, which was a Christian institution. Because they believed the world made sense and you could understand it and probe the mind of God. And that's, what, that's where the scientific revolution came out of. People who believe what Colossians 1 says, all things were created by him and for him. Who's him? Jesus. That's what that passage is talking about. They believed it. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. And so inquisitive Christians sought to understand the world and the mind of God, and that's how education was shaped. And they started schools, one after the other. Harvard, Yale, William and Mary, Princeton, Brown, all started by and for Christians. In the name of this uneducated carpenter who never wrote a book. The reason there are alphabets today is because Christians went places that didn't have them, and they said, well, we've got to help them tell about Jesus, so we've got to come up with an alphabet so we can write the story and give them a book called the Bible. Where did the early grammar textbooks come from in all different languages? Christian missionaries. Where did the, where did the dictionaries come from? Christian missionaries of Jesus. The story of Jesus is translated into more than 2,200 languages. No other book has anything close, like not even a fifth of that. Think for a minute about the massive impact that Jesus and his movement has had upon art and literature. Just imagine art and literature without this, the amazing story of Jesus and good and evil. I mean, no Dante, you know, who was the primary shaper of the Italian language. So Martin Luther. Martin Luther, you would not have his German Bible. It was the primary shaper of the German language. You'd have no King James Version of the Bible, which along with Shakespeare was the primary shaper of the English language. You'd have no Johann Sebastian Bach. Wouldn't be there. He revolutionized music, introduced four-part harmony, cantatas, baroque, counterpoint, all this stuff. Why? Because he was writing church music to praise Jesus, and he signed all of his works to the glory of God. But no, you would have none of that. You wouldn't have any uh, uh, Handel's Messiah, because you'd have no Frederick Handel. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Nope, wouldn't have it. Wouldn't have it. No Mozart's Requiem, no Gregorian chants, no black spirituals. Take it all away. No musical notation, in fact. Because that, you know where that came from? Christians who said we need to praise God better in all of the churches. How can we get this music over there? Well, let's, let's figure out a way to write it down on paper. Christians did that. No Sistine Chapel. No hand of God touching the finger of Adam. No Da Vinci's Last Supper. No story or person has gripped the artistic imagination like the story and the person of Jesus. Think, I don't have time, I'm running out of time, but think how he has radically impacted politics in ways we don't even, again, we take for granted, we don't even realize. In the time of Jesus, everyone assumed that the state or the empire and the worship were bound up together. You worshipped the emperor, That's, they were one and the same. Just worship the emperor. That's your religion, everybody said. And Jesus came along and said, ah. Instead, he said things like, Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and give to God what's God's. And God has a higher allegiance, because he would go on to say, There's a different kingdom we need to talk about, and it's not even of this world. Think of how Jesus has radically shaped human rights and the worth and dignity of every human being, things that we like to take for granted today and assume is normal. But I'll tell you what, 
Those assumptions are not, they're not assumed. They weren't assumed by the Huns or the Goths or the Nazis. No, in fact, they, it's, it's not self-evident. When we hear, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all people are created, well, Thomas Jefferson wrote that. Well, they're not so self-evident. Where there's slavery, where there's caste systems. But it is an idea that comes from Jesus who demonstrated that all people are created in the image of God and you treat them that way with dignity and worth. That comes from Jesus. It's an astounding concept. It's where Martin Luther King Jr. said, I have a dream. What wasn't his dream? He was just echoing the dream of Jesus who said things like Galatians 3.28 that that there's in this new community there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. You're all one in Christ. Radically transformed human rights. Do you know about a man named John Newton? He was a sailor in the Navy and then he took his skill and expertise And he made big money with his ships selling human beings as a slave trader. He threw hundreds and hundreds of slaves in these cargo ships in deplorable conditions. He'd ship them over. And and, and then when they docked, he'd throw out the ones who died. And he'd take the ones who could still stand up and put them out there and sell them like cattle. He was a wicked man with a heart of stone. But then he met Jesus. And it changed him. And he changed his heart, and it changed his actions, changed his life. That's what happens. And he became so overwhelmed that God could forgive someone like him and give him a new purpose in life that he just had to express it. And he tried to write a praise song, and he did, and maybe you've heard it. It goes like this, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see Jesus for who he is. And he had a friend named William Wilberforce who was a politician, hated it because he was a Christian and he, he was thought politics was too dirty. He had to get out of it. And John Newton said to him, don't you get out of it. You give every ounce of your strength to ending this evil of slavery. And he worked for 20 years through a lot of hardship because of the teaching of Jesus that had anchored in his heart. And you know what? Eventually, after his tireless work, They did overturn slavery. And people began to see with new eyes to treat people with dignity and respect. You see, those people were changed in a real way. Why? Because of Jesus. If that's not happening to you, if your life isn't a little wrecked, you don't know Jesus. He messes with you in a good way. If you're still thinking of Jesus as a little picture on a wall or a little statue, then you don't know Jesus yet. Friends, Who do you say Jesus is? When he changes you from the inside out, then you know you're getting close to the real Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is? He's the hinge of history. He's the liberator of the oppressed. He's the inspiration of the greatest art and poetry and music that the world has ever seen. He is hope for those who are sad and despairing and dying. He is joy to the 
saddest heart. He is light in the darkest situation. He is healing for those who are most broken. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the wisest and greatest teacher who's ever lived. He is the greatest mind that ever thought. He spawned the greatest movement ever and it has spread and continues to spread. He has changed more lives. He has turned more people around. He has impacted the entire globe more than anyone else who's ever breathed air. He, he has the, offered the greatest gift that's ever been offered. He alone mastered life. He alone conquered death. He alone overcame sin. No one else has done that. He alone offers you a passage back to God and a way that you can live with him forever in eternity in heaven. He alone grows more prominent and present and strong with each passing year. He's the son of God. He's the savior of the world. My friend, listen to me. He's my savior. He's my Lord. He's my God. He loves me. He forgives me. That's who he is. I got a question for you. Who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? I don't care what your daddy said, what your mama said. I don't care what you think the Sunday school answer is. Jesus is alive and you got to make a judgment about him because one day he's going to make a judgment about you. And the only way that you will pass that test is to say what Peter said. Peter said this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Who do you say Jesus is? When Jesus is lifted up, he'll draw you toward him. Not because you're afraid of getting beat up without him, but because he's the most fascinating, compelling drawing. There's only so many options you have when you get down to Jesus. Who is he? Who is he to you? And you don't get to make up who Jesus is. He is. So the, answer, the question is, who do you say he is? You only have so many options. You can say, well, he's a legend. I don't believe, I think he's a myth. You know, all historians, even non-Christians ones, will tell you you're wrong. But you can say he's just made up. He's a legend. I don't believe he existed. That's an option. Or you can say he's a liar. All this stuff about him saying he's God, he just made that up. You know, in which case you'd also have to conclude then you shouldn't listen to any of his teaching because he can't be trusted if he deceived people in that way, if he's a liar. Or you can say he's a lunatic. He actually believed all this stuff about himself. He's just a little nut in the head. In which case, I'm not sure you should listen to much else he says either. Those are your only options. He's a legend. He's a liar. He's a lunatic. Unless... Unless you can come to the conclusion that millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people before you have come to, and that is that he is, in fact, who he said he is. The Son of God. The Lord of Lords. The King of Kings before whom every knee will bow one day. And he's asking you if you will bow your knee today so he can lift you up to live a life you could never live without him. That's who Jesus is. So I invite you to come and see and be drawn to Jesus. Let's pray. God, help us to draw near to you, to start where we are and take a step toward you. And this week, I pray for everyone hearing my voice that they will try Jesus' way this week. Just take a stab at living how he taught. Try forgiving somebody. Try believing that we're loved. Try curbing our tongue and our negativity like Jesus taught us. Try living without worry for one day. Try, try talking to him. God, we have to go through today and tomorrow 
Anyway, so help us to try it with Jesus, to come and see, and to make him our Lord, to be drawn to him. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.